Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, Adapters. I hope everyone is doing well. Okay, so first off, this episode has two parts in case you get a bit confused. So kicking us off, I have another episode of Australia Adapts with Dr. Johanna Nalau. Johanna interviews sustainable tourism expert Dr. Suzanne Beckin from Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. Okay, and so the, for the second part of this episode, I have a wrap-up of my daily dispatches from the National Adaptation Forum that I just got back from from last week. So if you recall last week's episode of the podcast, I was doing these micro-podcasts from St. Paul, and this was at the forum. My final micro-podcasts are in this episode. There are three of them, and I just wanted to include them. There were some great conversations, and so we have Australia Daps, and then we just have these final dispatches from the National Adaptation Forum. So if it's a little confusing on how these two things were meshed together, that's why I'm explaining it now. Okay, so I have been doing a bit of traveling the past month. First off, I was doing on-location podcast at Harvard University where I was interviewing students from the Graduate School of Design where they are doing some adaptation work in East Boston. I, I will go into more detail uh, in future episodes, and I'm not quite sure when I'm going to release that episode. It's going to take a while. I had over 25 interviews. It was just a fascinating experience, and Harvard is doing some great work, but I just want to throw that out there. And also when I was in St. Paul, Minnesota at the National Adaptation Forum, you know, this was uh, last week, which means nothing to you if you're listening to this at some point in the future, but May 13th through May 15th. And I was there. It was a fantastic event. As you can imagine, the Adaptation Forum is very relevant to what I'm trying to do with this podcast. I recognized a lot of people there, just a lot of old colleagues and such. And it was a great chance to start sharing what I'm doing with the podcast. And so what was really cool for me is that I would occasionally run into a random person and there was about a thousand people at this event who would come up and they say, Hey, America Daps, I love that podcast. And so um, I have to say that people are hearing about it in that whole network. And I actually arranged to meet up with some regular listeners too. You know who you are. It was such a thrill to meet some of you in person that they were listeners and we knew we were both going to this event and I got to meet people in person and put a face to folks. And that was really cool. So a big event. I had a poster there. I was sharing a little table space and just getting the word out. I think people were kind of going up to the poster and thinking, what the heck is this? You know, there's a lot of wonky tables and such. And here was this poster of a lot of my guests and sort of this kind of Hollywood style poster. And so it was good. Just a good chance to kind of get the word out of what the podcast is all about and very relevant to the people attending. So if you want to learn more about that forum, they have a website. Just search for National Adaptation Forum and a lot of the presentations and such. Okay. As part of that forum, I actually went to a members meeting of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, or ASAP, in St. Paul. So remember, ASAP and America Daps have created this partnership where we're, you know, sort of promoting each other. And so here's the plug. If you are interested in connecting with a network of adaptation professionals from across North America, check out adaptationprofessionals.org. This link is also included in my show notes. And Beth Gibbons is their managing director, and she was there, and we had some great conversations. And she'll be sharing America Daps on various platforms over at ASAP, you know, newsletters and on the websites. And so we're just kind of promoting each other because I obviously support what they're trying to do, create some cohesiveness to this emerging issue of adaptation. And they recognize that the podcast and the sort of people that I get on is very relevant to their members. All right, so quickly, some future travel. I'm headed to Uganda for the Community-Based Adaptation Conference, and it's going to be in Kampala, Uganda, 
Uconda in late June. I'm getting sponsored to go over there and interview some folks. I'm very excited about this because I actually don't have much international adaptation experience. And it's going to be a chance for me to, to learn a lot. Uh, think Much different issues in developing countries when it comes to climate change. And I hope some of those stories will inform some of the stories that I bring, you know, back to, you know, there's certainly an emphasis on North America in my podcast. So going to Uganda, very excited for some I've been to Africa. And so folks out there who, who deal with developing country and adaptation issues, if you have articles or papers that you think might be useful to me, I'd like to do a lot of homework before I get somewhere so I can ask you know, hopefully useful questions. And so send them to me at americadaps at gmail.com. Or if you know anyone who's going to the CBA 11, also let me know. Maybe I can go do a micro podcast with them. Okay. Don't forget. I love hearing from all you guys at americadaps at gmail.com. It's the best part of my week when I get that random email. If you have ideas for guests or feedback, I love to hear from you. People write me these sometimes long letters and you know what they're getting out of the podcast. And I love that. It's very important to me and I really appreciate it. Okay, I'm going to do more housekeeping at the end of this episode, but next week it'll kind of be more of a traditional episode, and I have Dr. Ben Preston from RAND Corporation coming on. We have a nice, substantive conversation about what RAND's doing on adaptation. All right, so let's jump right into another episode of America Adapts. Okay, wait, not so fast. I just want to provide a little context. I was having some conversations at the National Adaptation Forum about the podcast and this this new segment we have with Australia Daps. And so I wanted to just briefly talk about that because this is the second episode of Australia Daps and people weren't quite clear on how it's part of America Daps and just a little bit of history. I met Johanna just online. She had found the podcast and so she contacted me and we just started talking. And then we thought it'd be a great idea for her to start interviewing some folks in Australia about what they're doing over there. And I just kind of use umbrella of America Daps to share those stories. And so today she's talking with Dr. Suzanne Beckin, who's also based in Australia. But here, here's this thing. Dr. Beckin is actually German and Johanna is from Finland and they're both living in Australia doing adaptation issues there. And so I just this real international presence to the podcast and I love that. This podcast is going global. Okay, so we will keep publishing these segments in the future. They'll be semi-recurring. Usually they're about 20-minute conversations and we'll attach them to a normal episode. And I, I just want to give some context that people are kind of like, what's this Australia Daps? Because there's only been one episode before. And so that's what we're doing again here. All right. So let's jump right in. Now to Johanna. Hi, this is uh, Dr. Johanna Nalov, and welcome to the second episode of Australia Adapts. In this episode, I speak with Professor Susan Beckham, who's uh, the Director for Griffith Institute for Tourism. And Susanna has a very long-term career, or has had a very long-term career, in uh, looking at how the tourism sector is mitigating, so what options they have to reduce uh, their greenhouse gas emissions, but also how some of the global trends uh, regarding peak oil and the price changes might impact travel, and also looking at adaptation. So how do how does the sector actually start to consider some of the impacts that are coming in the future, and how they deal with extreme events, which obviously have a have a big impact on the tourism industry. And some of her re we also discussed some of her um, recent research in the Great Barrier Reef uh, in Australia, which has been is a hot topic at the moment with with all the bleaching and what might that mean for 
Australian tourism industry. And I think it's a very interesting example globally as well uh, for those international listeners on what can the sector do if one of the main attractions, for instance, an coral reef ecosystem starts declining. And we also discussed the Global Sustainability Tourism Dashboard that Susanna is involved with and that links again with Paris Agreement and how so they have been developing some indicators, how to measure the sustainability in the sector using big data globally. So that's another uh, fascinating initiative that we'll talk about on um, that's global and lots and lots of uh, examples also uh, from Australia. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. In this episode, I'll talk with uh, Professor Susan Beckham from Griffith Institute for Tourism and her adaptation journey. Susanna, so I just wanted to ask a few questions. First, as people keep saying, adaptation is such a new discipline, but you've been doing adaptation research quite a long time. So I read your first 2005 paper on uh, adaptation mitigation in the tourism sector in Fiji. Mm -hmm. So could you just tell us a little bit how you got interested in adaptation, what your background is as well? No, that's interesting, actually, that you mentioned that paper. This is now 12 years ago. I actually did come more from the mitigation side in that particular Fiji project Mm. as well, because my PhD was on energy use in tourism, and I looked at greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. And when I had the opportunity to work in Fiji, at the resorts, which is really interesting also from an energy point of view and emissions, but it, it is obvious when you start talking to them that it's really also an adaptation yeah. problem because most of them, if not all, basically are located right at the coast, mm. often too close. And then you learn about, um, obviously, there's legislation that they have to be X meters away from the high tide mark, which often they are not. Mm. Um, and you learn about uh, water issues in Fiji. You've got uh, sort of droughts mixing with floods. So what do they do about it? How do they prepare? Extreme events, of course, in Fiji, like in the other islands, a uh, big thing. So, yeah, mitigation and fuel consumption is one thing, but really for the existence of the resource is probably the adaptation that mm. is more important for survival. Mm. So then the paper actually was harmonizing yeah, mitigation yeah, yeah. adaptation because you, you can't really separate. Uh, because, for example, it turned out that some things that one might approaches mitigation in the first instance are so you are self-sufficient or you have a renewable energy yeah. plant of whatever kind you've got a solar panel actually they're really good because if there's a storm mm. and you're cut off from yeah. your supply line you you are more resilient and in some ways that has been then an adaptation mm. to those increased um, extreme events so so same with water efficiency so you think about water um as maybe a mitigation action in the sense that pumping water and so on, the less the better. But of mm. course, water saving water is a major adaptation measure for drought. Yeah. So you can't really separate them mm. often. So you were at, in New Zealand when you were doing the research? or at the yeah, yeah, I was in New Zealand. So I still was probably mainly working on sort of carbon emissions from aviation and so mm. on. So the Fiji was really an interesting first sort of move into adaptation. And then a little bit later, um, you know, you can't separate from the extreme events. And um, I got more interested in resilience mm. more broadly. And, and that, of course, relates so closely to climate change adaptation. Yeah. Especially when, like, I mean, Fiji, but also basically most tourism businesses who don't think long term mm. at all, like they think about the next season. Yeah. So you then try to talk about adaptation. It doesn't mean so much. Um, mm. You talk about resilience and extreme weather events. How that's, you know, makes all sense. And so we did a, we had a, a big government funded project in New Zealand on climate change, which we 
essentially in the first year turned almost more into a climate variability project. Because mm. when we started talking to the tourism operators and the ice glaze over, yeah. you talk about, you, you bring out your scenarios for 2050 and 2070, yeah. which we created with Neva. And they said, okay, that's all interesting, but not so relevant. Mm. You talk about next year mm. or you talk about tomorrow. And there's an extreme weather warning or the, the glacier, uh, the, the snow fluctuations of for the ski fields. That's all really interesting. Mm. So we had to reframe the whole thing. Yeah. And got quite good interest in. Okay. Yeah. And what about the research that you've been doing in Australia? So I understand you've been working mm. a lot in the Great Barrier Reef. So what are the kind of challenges that you see in spe- specifically in Australia to tourism and yeah. in the context of climate change and adaptation? I mean, Australia is a really interesting one because I think, well, a lot of things that one might class adaptation and some ways autonomous adaptation, people are doing. People mm. are reasonably in the businesses are reasonably good in water efficiency, mm. for example. And so when we analyzed a big data set on water use in hotels, it turned out that Australia was amongst the most efficient in the world. Now, you ask any hotel or resort whether mm. they adapt to climate change, and mm. so they probably wouldn't yeah. now, but it's, it's, it's inherent because of the geographic context and the experience of droughts. Um, if you ask specifically about adaptation, it's actually in Australia not, the, the tourism industry is not particularly forward planning in mm. that sense. Um, however, in some places like the Great Barrier Reef in particular, the, the operators are very aware. Mm. And, and so there have been plans and strategies, um, what to do, but it's quite limited. Yeah. So the tourism industry there has probably been more lobbying other sectors to, to help reduce the pressure and increase the resilience of the reef as such. Mm. So whether that now counts as adaptation to maybe create the, the policy pressure. Mm for general action to reduce impacts. I'm not sure that's sort of an indirect, but probably the only way um, you can adapt to things like coral bleaching and, and some of those changes we mm. see. Well, they, you could also, they, in some ways, less responsive actions like they change um, the diving sites in, in response. Mm. So you apply for a concession and say, okay, that site is not good anymore. We need to rotate. Mm. So and is that, has that been happening? Oh, that's happening all the time. Mm. Yeah, they're quite on board and... and um, yeah, trying to pick the best places and the best seasons and also maybe enhancing products. So if you have a reef operation and you might buy into a land-based ecotourism oh, operation okay. and diversify your portfolio. Mm. So these things are happening. Mm. And especially now, I mean, I know because we spoke with the CEO of the Australian Marine Tour Operator Association a few weeks ago and because they're very concerned, the second mm. bleaching event in a row. Yeah. And now regardless how bad, but the publicity and the mm. social media presence of that yeah. um, means that some people basically won't book. Yeah. So that's this whole idea of last chance tourism gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've heard that. And I've actually seen it some, somewhere that people No, I've actually had people, people tell me that, mm. you know, they are planning to go to the Great Barrier Reef before it's yeah. too late. Yeah. Um, See, and that's, that's uh, really said, that's why I don't like this last chance tourism. But um, I spoke to uh, one of the managers at Tourism Events Queensland. So that's the Queensland marketing body for tourism who try to get people here, of course. And he said he would like to turn it around and say, rather than last chance to see it, last chance to do something about it. So come mm. here and help. Yeah. You know, come here and volunteer. There's, for example, citizen science projects where people can help um, with information or just come and spend mm. money so that 
because one of the key arguments in the recent years was that tourism, of course, brings money to the economy mm. because of the reef. It's yeah. the single largest attractor in Australia, really. Um, if, if we lose that, it's a big problem, and that gets politicians interested. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is... And I mean, for those in the U.S., don't necessarily know, we just had... Um, Cyclone Debbie to come yeah. through, um, mostly in Queensland, the eastern eastern coast of Australia, and, and I think the um, the damage bill is is extensive and it has affected the, the tourism industry as well. It does, and in fact, I just had a meeting. We've got a, we've got two projects that involve big data analysis on what people say about the reef. And just today, I was told because we're starting to analyze the Weibo data, so that's the Chinese social network like Twitter. Okay, yeah. And so on on Cyclone Debbie, there were eleven hundred conversations already from people in China who talk about Debbie. So we're wow. doing sentiment analysis, and I assume mm. it's not all good. Yeah, um, and people then, especially if they are more security conscious mm. then they might not come and then they might also think the reef is destroyed so mm. that publicity is not good mm. Mm. yeah because i think i mean and that's i suppose that's the kind of linkage you know the extreme events and these kind of you know if there is more bleaching or, or more more cyclones how i mean that's just obviously not just australia but it will have have a big impact so mm. do you think the kind of trying to get more diverse activities is the answer or well or frankly if, yeah exactly if, and that is something where i think some investment needs to be made to even think about the alternative queensland without the reef if you look mm. at the climate models it's actually not very pretty it's more it's not if but when the okay. reef will decline and then the question is how do you define decline mm. i mean there will be always something but yeah what level of biodiversity and marine life do you need to support those, uh, you, if you want, ecosystem services of well, protection of the shoreline, mm. um, fish breeding grounds, um, recreational value, tourism value? So that is something I think that really requires some mm. research. Yeah. Um, in the moment, of course, we put a lot of effort into the land-based processes yeah. in terms of runoff and so on. But to actually think, well, if in 20, 30 years, there's not much left. Well, mm. what, the Queensland industry without tourism would be a completely different one. Yes. So I think it's worth thinking about yes. um, now. Mm. And then, as you say, invest differently or or maybe identify those spots, the, the, the triage approach, um, those spots where maybe there is good diving still. Mm. Um, so what, what what do we think where that is and what kind and how can we market that and save that? And So I think a little bit of thought needs to go into that. And do you think that, I mean, it's, is there uh, with the decision makers that you've talked to? I mm. mean, is, is there is there concern on and are they kind of thinking about strategies that they could start putting in place? So is it more, you know, we let's have a look at what happens next season or in in the next five years? Or yeah, that's a really interesting question because there's huge concern, mm. um, but. Has the thinking moved long-term for long-term strategy making? I don't think so. Some people are. If you look at the Queensland tourism strategy, that mm. wouldn't be reflected at all. That's a pure growth strategy, okay. assuming, well, the, the assets, the national assets being their business as usual and just focusing on infrastructure development, mm. air links. So it's a pure growth. So that hasn't infiltrated that. If you talk to individuals out there in the industry, they're very concerned. So yeah, let's let's watch that space. Mm. Uh, hopefully, research can inform it and maybe mm. sort of re in, or put some meat on the bone of those concerns. Yeah. Concern is one thing, but if you and and we have talked about the idea of maybe some innovative ways of visualizing or illustrating mm. the change to people that might give that 
imagination or wake yeah. up call to say, okay, if that's what it's looked like, we really need to invest do, some, do yeah. something. So I think that that would be a good thing. Okay. And I was thinking if you could say something about the reason, because I know that you work work globally with many of your colleagues as well, mm. looking at different sustainability issues. Yes. So maybe if you could just give a short kind yeah. of explanation what the tourism dashboard for yes. sustainability is, and, yeah. I, and especially how you actually came up with the idea and how you developed it. Yeah. So I, I, I try and give the one minute summary of how that happened. But the so there's obviously the UN mm. Sustainable Development Goals, yeah. and so 17 of them, and uh, global bodies like the United Nations World Tourism Organization, like many others, say tourism contributes majorly. Mm. Yeah. Of course, uh, one 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 might argue that's true to poverty alleviation, and there's a lot of examples. For example, Serengeti where tourism contributes to biodiversity mm. conservation. Um, so there's a lot of discussion on how tourism can benefit. Now, no one has ever measured that. So we don't know mm. because you can also find in the literature a lot of examples how tourism exacerbates poverty yeah. Yeah. or increases inequality <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and leads to conflict. So the truth is actually we don't know and it, it probably always depends on the context. But we said, well, just like we measure um, international arrivals and expenditure, so, for example, there's 1.2 billion international movements, so international mm. travel. Um, there's about 4 billion domestic in China. And oh. so, <laughs> and there's about 3 billion in America. Mm. There's lots of travel. It's amazing. And no one measures. So these, these numbers are measured because they have economic interest. Yes. So it's yeah. money. But, mm. but do we actually know how many, what, what's the amount of emissions created? Mm. And, and what is the gender equity in tourism globally? So we went about and created based on the sustainable development goals and with input from stakeholders, we came up with indicators that we can measure globally mm. and track over time how tourism does actually contribute or not. And so what it does, um, there's a website, um, it's tourismdashboard.org. Uh, um, what it actually does is it demystifies some of the um, issues, like, for example, poverty alleviation. We look at how much of the global expenditure ends up in, in the least developed countries, the LDCs, okay. and, and small island developing states, and it's less than 6%. So all of all tourism, most okay. ends up yeah. in basically in Europe yeah. and in North America. Mm. 6% in those countries now, it's growing, but you, mm. whether you then can say tourism leads to poverty alleviation, it's probably smaller than most people think. Mm. And then it, of course, depends what, what yeah. where do those 6% even go. Yeah. Yeah. And what do they do? So, so the, the dashboard is very high level. Um, we've got a few climate change relevant indicators in there, like uh, global aviation emissions. Mm. Obviously a key issue for tourism, sustainability. And, and the, the one issue where people might even say it's just an oxymoron. Yeah. Sustainable <laughs> tourism doesn't exist as long as people fly in planes. So we measure the emissions globally. And of course they are increasing at about two or three percent a year. And we also look at, at resource use in hotels and we look at, um, protected area, tourism mm. planning, and so on. So it, it gives a good um, tool to monitor. Now, what we haven't got yet, but what we're hoping to do is, is the insurance claims made by tourism companies because mm. what we want to capture, and, and we know that those data exist. The key is for those global data to get them and yeah. so get partners um, like insurance companies who are willing to share. Um, so we got that for aviation, for example, but um, for insurance, we're still working on it. Um, the hypothesis being that if tourism businesses adapt, there should actually be less claims, or at least one would then obviously have to check the number of events and so on. But you would have a tracking mechanism to see if tourism as such is getting more and more affected by disasters mm. or not. 
So, so, so we're working on that, on our adaptation one. In the meantime, we have to use others like the water efficiency, for mm. example. Which, yeah. Which gives at least some indication on sustainability. Like, yeah. Because mm. I think, I mean, in the, um, and what's probably of interest is the kind of, the discussions at quite high level at the moment is that there, yeah. there's supposed to be more integration with the Paris Agreement and those kind mm. of processes and the SDGs with yeah. the Sustainable Development Goals. So I think something like the dashboard will be quite of interest to, well, both of these, but also because mm. in the Paris Agreement they say about the Global Adaptation Goal. Yeah. And what, so there's a lot of flurry of thinking at the moment. What's, what's, how that do you measure, like? and how yeah, do you how measure, do you measure that? Um, and, and that's always been the problem of adaptation. And so maybe things like the dashboard, even though they don't quite solve that question, but they mm. are an, an example. And I mean, there's other, it's actually an, a trend, I think now, the, the measure to manage approach. You can see a mm. few of those initiatives where, there's a global peace institute that measure and visualize on a website, um, safety and security. And, and there's quite a few initiatives. So hopefully we make some progress. Mm. And yeah, if, if those more, more general adaptation measurement frameworks, um, advance that might help us for the tourism sector as well, then mm. to, to apply them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Cause it is, I mean, this kind of, well, on all, approaches and research that is looking at ad- climate adaptation mm. it seems that the yeah that i mean it's been long talked about yeah. the kind of lack of monitoring and evaluation methods and the yeah. lack of measuring yeah. and and how do you do that so there's been in in the re- probably in the past five six years there's been more and more thinking yeah but there hasn't like the, i think the development different development banks and mm. you know the kind of i would say normal donor organizations they have their processes in place and so mm-hmm. the german the giz the german yeah. one has has been quite you know putting more effort and thinking yeah. um in that space so but, there's a great research project mm-hmm. to look at all those even donor <laughs> evaluation frameworks now and and identify mm-hmm. indicators yeah because you're right i mean the carbon emissions from the Paris agreement um i'm saying lightly now you can measure them easily <laughs> it's obviously not true and there's a lot of you know it's, it's yeah. not so easy but yeah. relative to the other patients yes. yeah um, so I'd be very interested if, if there's more progress on that side and mm. we can feed that back into tourism. No, it is. And it's, yeah. And that's why I think the dashboard is a very good example of, you know, how do you take big data sets mm. and actually yeah. start making sense and, and provide some evidence of, yeah. of the particular trends? Because yeah. I think still with adaptations or any, even the in the fourth assessment report, there was there was a call for, in 2007. There was a you know call for more mm. case studies on adaptation, yeah. and now we have lots and lots of case studies on adaptation. But the kind of critique still that we have is that, well, how are we going to make sense of what they mm. what the trends are rather than just what a single you know? I mean, that's obviously IPCC you know tries to kind of you know summarize the solution mm. and, and and look at those trends, but yeah, yeah. It, I mean it. It is interesting, and some sectors have moved ahead anyway. Um, if I think of, <clears throat> and, and you could measure adaptation, but then the question is, is it sustainable? Because I'm thinking of snowmaking and ski fields, mm. where the ski fields might well quantify and measure. And, and frankly, most ski fields around the world can put a dollar value literally on their snowmaking investment. Mm. It's massive. It's probably one of the largest cost factors, I would say. So okay. you could actually measure yeah. that. But that the question is, 
so what that measure doesn't tell us sustainability. So it, it tells us that they are maybe more resilient to climate mm. variability and maybe longer term change for a particular location. And you've got a dollar value, so you have to think it for. Yeah. Um, but but that would be a very tourism specific adaptation in a in a subsector that you could actually measure. Mm. And and you might measure investment in desalination plants, which is actually happening also in in island states a lot in tourism. Yeah. And again. You then say, well, they have adapted. This is why this, this is where we started. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is why, why adaptation and mitigation together are so important. Mm. Because I've been doing work in the Maldives. They all have their desalination plant mm. and it's all based on diesel, mm. which they ship to that island, which is shipped to Male to the fuel plant. Yeah. So yes, adapted, but not very sustainably. So you've yeah. got to measure them together. Yeah. No, yeah. And I think, I mean, like last week, I just saw where lots of research institutions, but countries as well at this mm. high level meetings, mm. that's exactly the, what they were saying is, mm. you know, that's why the Paris Agreement that UNF C processes mm. have to be brought together with the SDGs. Exactly right. So that there is mm. sustainability and it's not, you know, you can make mitigation or adaptation, you know, decisions mm. in the short term, but they might, you know, increase inequality or, and obviously, it, it, exactly, and that's, it's about the outcome that you want, and that's exactly what needs to happen from a business point of view, and this is what much of tourism is. Mm. Of course, well, the business makes the best decision for the business, yeah. and in that case, it would be to build a desalination plant. So the business case um, is not necessarily the sustainable outcome in the long mm. term. So that, that's a major challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So lots, lots, uh, lots to do. Um, Lots to do to on 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 the conceptual yeah line to to find those frameworks, but also probably more data required, and then the communication side. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. That's been very informative. Okay. So, thank you. Um, and hopefully, we in the next episode, hopefully, we'll be talking more about disasters. Thank you, Susanna. Thank you. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap for the Austria Adapt segment. And so for the final part of this podcast, I have my final dispatches from the National Adaptation Forum. And that's where I went around and did some micro podcasts. And so these are some of the voices from when I was at the forum that I wanted to include it that weren't with the original piece that I had last week, just so you're not confused. All right. Thanks. Hey, adapters, we are back at the National Adaptation Forum. You keep hearing me say that, but I don't know other. Any other way to intro this thing? I am with Amanda Sessa right now. Hey, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. So what do you think of the forum so far? So far, it's pretty spectacular. It's busy. There's a lot of sessions going on all at once. It seems like every time I find a, a couple sessions I want to go to, they happen concurrently, and I'm having to choose. But it's great to see a lot of old friends and, and make new ones. So tell me about the sessions. Which ones stood out? You know, the one this morning is probably my favorite session so far. It was on first foods and food security. So it was a panel of, of tribal adaptation professionals and uh, researchers who work with tribes and First Nations talking about what's happening with first foods, whether it's traditional hunters and, and gatherers or farming societies and how climate is impacting you know, the, the patterns or the timing or the quality of, of foods that are available. And it was pretty fascinating to hear it from the people who it most affects. Okay, so where are you coming from? You're kind of in transition right now. What, what were you doing before? 
So for the last six years, I have been working for the Northwest Boreal Landscape Conservation Cooperative, or LCCs. Those are public-private partnerships that span North America and get people working across boundaries, across agencies and organizations, you know, out of their silos, and to partner together and, and try to tackle big issues like climate change that one organization can't do alone. Okay, so you are no longer a Fed, though, right? That's right. Not even two weeks. So you can say anything you want. <laughs> it's pretty. This new freedom is pretty exciting. <laughs> well, I've heard some bad rumblings about the LCCs and the Climate Science Center. Is any sort of insight on that? You know, I think it's rumors at this point. Yeah, we're, we still don't have a deputy secretary and uh, or a director for the Fish and Wildlife Service, for instance. And so there's no, there's nothing moving, and and so. You know, rumblings are just rumblings at this point. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic, actually. That sounded like a Fed answer. <laughs> Sugarcoating an obviously dark cloud that's coming. Let it go. You are not a Fed. Any, you, I know it's just natural to just spin it positively. No, I'm serious. I really think that even in the new administration, working together, you know, finding ways to be more efficient – and, um, you know, looking holistically at the landscape, not just looking at a single species or a single conservation issue, but looking at a, a working landscape that's providing multiple values for people who are in the extractive industries or people who are in the conservation world or people who live off the land in a subsistence lifestyle, trying to get everybody to work together for a sustainable landscape. I think that that's not an, at odds at all with the new administration. Then it's a shame they're losing you because you have very positive energy about it all. So that's a shame. All right. So I'm going to do a major pivot here. Something I think very interesting is that you, now that you're leaving the federal government, you are starting your own podcast on adaptation. Yeah, I'm giving it a whirl. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but I thought that this conference would be a, a good time to meet people, get some practice, talking with people with, a, you know, sticking a microphone in their faces, uh, hone my interview skills, that kind of thing, and also meet folks like you who have been doing it a while and uh, have a lot to offer. And I really appreciate your help so far and all the insights. So I heard the uh, name of the first episode is America Dap Sucks. Is there any truth <laughs> to that comment? No comment. <laughs> so when can people expect some of these episodes to be out? You know, I'm thinking um, early fall of 2017. All right. Well, give me, I guess give me a little bit more background. What kind of stories do you want to tell? I mean, I have stories that I want to tell, and I think the sky's the limit. There's a, there's a need for a lot more people telling these stories. And so what would you hope to accomplish through the podcast? Yeah, I think that's a it's a great question because it's ever-evolving. You know, when I was a Fed, and I'm thinking, okay, what's a fun, creative project that I can do that's completely different than the kind of federal bureaucracy stuff that I do on day-to-day? On -day? So it was the creative side that drew me to, to wanting to make a go of this. And then now that I'm here and I'm starting to get some interviews, it's, it's allowing me to get clear on what I want and what I don't want. And coming to a conference, it reminds me of how bad of communicators we are in the scientific field. And that's not to put anybody down, just the collective we as a whole. We're, we're pretty bad at it. And I think that is directly correlated to public sentiments about science and allows for, you know, fake news and alternative facts to be accepted because we're not getting our messages out there. It's not that we're not 
communicating our messages, but we're not communicating them in a way that's being heard by people. So the, this week here at the, at the forum, I'm starting to think about how we can tell stories and tell them in a way that is relevant to people, that grips them emotionally, that makes, you know, people that are being impacted by climate change seem like very real people. And people who are studying climate change also seem like real people. And, and underneath all of the jargon and the scientific expertise and the, and the acronyms and the initials and everything, there's a lot of passion there. And, and how can we use storytelling to get to the bottom of that passion and use that to reach audiences or listeners in a new way. That was a great way to describe why you're justifying doing. And I, I think very inspirational. And I hope you, you follow through on this. I hope you're producing these things and you have the regular podcast. Cause I think there'd be a real demand. I think I look back on like, why did I decide to do it? And, I was probably thinking, you know, I want to hear my own voice on a regular basis. What could I possibly do? <laughs> What's this podcasting thing all about? You had a much more inspirational one, so I appreciate that. I also hate hearing my own voice, so I'm going to have to get over that. <laughs> no, no, seriously, some advice is like, don't speechify. I constantly get feedback saying, Doug, shut your mouth, get to the guest. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and, and I think that there are so many interesting people that you know i think that you and i and 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 the interviewee seat interviewer seat can just sit back and and let people run with it all right thanks so much amanda and i'm sure we will be in touch sounds great thanks doug hey adapters we are back on day two of the national adaptation forum and i am with america adapts listener natalie ambrosio hey natalie how are you doing well thanks how are you I'm great. So where are you coming from and why are you here? I come from the Notre Dame Global Adaptation Initiative, or Indie Gain, and I'm here to build connections for Indie Gain and reach out to our various advisors and collaborators, but also just meet a lot of people and learn a ton at the forum. So a couple things. So why would anyone be interested in Indie Gain? So Indie Gain, our work, we have a country index that examines countries' vulnerability to climate change hazards and their readiness to adapt. But we're also working on building our urban adaptation assessment. And we are examining the climate hazard-specific vulnerability in every U.S. city, over 100,000 in population, as well as their readiness to adapt. And so we're hoping that will be very interesting and great conversation starters for government leaders and also community members in the cities. Okay, so have you had a favorite presentation so far in these last day and a half? Ooh, that's hard to narrow it down. Is that just an answer that you've been multitasking and not listening to these presentations? No, absolutely not. I really enjoyed the, I can't remember specifically what it was called, tracking equitable adaptation, I think. It was mostly people based in California, and that was a really interesting forum to hear what people are doing and then also push back from certain community members and examining what it really means to be working equitably. That's something with IndieGain that we're also, we do, we have an equity lens over all of our vulnerability assessments, so making sure that adaptation efforts are distributed equitably, I think, is a very important question and challenge to always keep in mind. So you're a relatively young professional. What does it mean for you to, to be in the field of adaptation? What are you thinking about when you, you, you're, cause it's a new emerging issue. And so you're jumping right into it, which is kind of unique for a lot of us. As I emerge in the professional world and so does this adaptation field, I think it's really important to just spread awareness, start at that level and 
first off, spreading awareness so everybody should know what climate change adaptation is. And that's not something how that's not how it is right now. And so I think about outreach and how this is how my work with Indie Gain or my how, how I'm listening to things at the forum, how that is really going to be applicable to my parents who aren't educated in this at all or the people walking around downtown, how you can really connect it and reach out to the people who we are doing all this to impact. So are you based in South Bend? Yeah, right now the Notre Dame Global Adaptation Initiative is based at South Bend, Indiana. So you revealed to me that you're moving from South Bend to California, which seems like a very smart move. (laughs) Yes, I'm originally from the Bay Area of California, and so I'm very excited to move back there. I'll still be doing work with Indie Gain. We have a few dozen cities in California in our assessment. And so I will be excited at the opportunities to collaborate in a more in-person way while I'm in California. The reputation of Notre Dame and yet you get to live in California. Lucky. Pretty ideal. I'm very lucky. Thank you so much. Thank you, Doug. Hey, Adapters. We're back and I am with Pam here at the National Adaptation Forum. Hey, Pam, how are you? I'm doing fine today. How are you doing? I am doing just delightful. So why are you here at the National Adaptation Forum? A couple of different reasons. Um, I originally joined because with a colleague, I was helping to coordinate a workshop at the beginning of the forum, looking at how to use um, essentially role-playing in video games as a way to kind of defuse tension and conflict situations. So that was the first reason. But then, you know, beyond that, um, this is a space that I am working in professionally and having the opportunity to hear about what other folks are doing in other sectors across the country is a great way to, you know, get ideas about how I can do my own work better. So there was this Game of Thrones thing. Is that you or is that something else? <sighs> Game of Thrones is not me. <laughs> I mean, what's your question exactly? Well, I was just curious is related because I, I don't think that session's happened yet, but I was, someone had mentioned that to me before and I, I'm, I'll probably go sit in on it. I want to learn more about it. Yeah. Okay. No, that particular session, I didn't realize there was a session with that in the title. No, that is not me. Um, the, there was a workshop before the conference on Monday. Um, the idea there is that when you have different stakeholders around the table, um, traditional ways of working through problems kind of focus on the problem itself. Um, but if you sort of get stakeholders working through a scenario together, then instead of fighting each other, they're working together towards a common goal. Um, so that was kind of, that's, that's what that was all about. Not Game of Thrones. Okay, so what presentations are you hoping to see over the next day and a half? There you've got me. I plan out my uh, sessions as I go, um, depending on who I talk to and what sort of conversations I end up getting into. So I won't, I haven't looked yet. That's okay. I'm spending most of my time in the hallways anyway. This networking is much more productive, I find, although there are some good presentations out there. No, I definitely have attended several really fantastic presentations over the course of the day, in addition to the various networking conversations I've had. So if you want an example of one I've been to this morning, that was super useful. Planners from the southeastern coast of Florida were presenting work that they had done on helping the very large urban areas, very developed and dense urban areas down there deal with groundwater rise and sea level rise and increased flooding from storms and rainfall. Just this, you know, perfect storm of water coming from all directions in an area that's incredibly densely developed. And, you know, what infrastructure solutions are they implementing to try to deal with all of this so that, you know, people still have a decent quality of life and, you know, there's not a huge amount of property damage as conditions change. So that was an example of a session this morning that I found fascinating. So this is a relatively new form. This is its third one. Are are you happy with it? Will you come to the next one? 
Yeah, I'd have to say I'm I'm quite impressed. This is the first time I've been to this forum. Um, I've been to a couple of other fora over the course of the past year and a half professionally, and so I've had the chance to sort of compare how they're organized, who attends, what their goals are, what sorts of stories are shared, and what kind of networking and collaboration happens. And of the several different ones that I've been to, this one has impressed me more than most for a couple of reasons. First, because the government, private, and academic sectors see, and NGOs seem to be pretty equally represented here, which I haven't seen in other places. Also, it's very mission-focused. I mean, everyone, some d- different fora have different, you know, scopes of things they try to address. Some address all issues in conservation biology. Others address, you know, very targeted and focused things. This takes the concept of climate adaptation, and I, I think the level of focus is right, the size is right, um, and the, the diversity of sectors is right. Last question, and you have one word to answer. Just one. I don't want any waffling on this. If you had to describe to my listeners that are not here, St. Paul, in one word, what would you say? Charming. Oh, very sweet answer. Okay, thank you so much, Pam. Thank you, Doug. That is a wrap, Adapters. Thanks to Johanna and Suzanne for that awesome segment of Australia Adapts. Great to see the tourism sector start to think about what climate change will mean for that industry. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or however you get your podcasts. I know people consume them different ways. And if you're a regular listener and you're looking to spread the word of America Adapts, then spread it. Share the iTunes links. They're in the show notes. And do this with five of your friends, family, or colleagues podcasts grow by word of mouth. And don't forget to join the Facebook page and community group. Search for America Daps. And I've had quite a few people join in the past week. It's I love seeing that uptick in traffic. And I'd, I'd love to see the community grow. I share articles there. I provide commentary. People who join the group share articles. And sometimes we get these really interesting conversations going. So yeah, if you're out there, you're on your phone, you're looking at it, just search in Facebook for America Daps and join the group. Okay, next week I have Dr. Ben Preston from Rand Corporation on, and I hope, I'm pretty sure, 90% sure, I've got a huge announcement to make next week. It's a very big deal for America Daps, and no, it's not related to some high-profile guest. I uh, will do those in the future, but this is a very big announcement for America Daps, and I'm hoping to announce it next week. And don't forget to write a review on iTunes. It Sometimes it's a little trickier than it needs to be, but please, it's very helpful when people search for podcasts. It shows up because of the rankings. And finally, I'd like to thank you, my listeners. You are the best podcast listeners out there, and don't let anyone else tell you differently. Okay, let's wrap this up. Don't forget, when you adapt, we adapt. America adapts. All right, everyone, have a great week.